This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. John chapter 11 will provide the, um, the foundation for, for our thoughts, and uh, hopefully we can kind of refocus and, and focus on God's Word. But when it comes to God, a question that we probably hear as much as any is the question, why would a loving God allow bad to exist or bad to happen in the world? I mean, you, you've heard that question. You probably even asked that question. But the interesting thing about that question is that when we talk about bad things, isn't it true that we always focus on the bad out there? You know, the bad in the world, the bad in others. We need, never think about the bad in here. You know, our bad attitudes, our bad thoughts, the bad things we do or the bad things we wish we could do. And so here's basically what we want. We want God to get rid of the bad in the rest of the world, but we want Him to show us grace and overlook the bad here. And just in case you don't realize how bad you are or how bad I am, let me remind us through a couple of questions. And the first question is pretty easy. Have you, and and you, you can raise your hand if you want or polish your halo, whatever you want to do, but have you ever done anything bad? And I think naturally all of us would say, oh yes, we understand that. We're all sinners, but... But, but here's what a lot of us say. We say, but Joe, you know, I did all that bad stuff when I was young and foolish and sowing the wild oats and I was crazy, but I'm good. I'm changed. I'm transformed. And so if that was your response, let me ask a follow-up question that was pretty convicting for me. After you supposedly reformed and quit doing those bad things, have you ever wanted to do something really bad, but you were afraid of getting caught? You were afraid your spouse would find out, you were afraid the law would find out, or your boss would find out, and so you didn't do it, but it was in your heart, and you wanted to. And remember the book of Proverbs says that as one thinks in his heart, so is he. So again, I think all of us are guilty of, of having bad in here because we have what theologians refer to as the carnal nature. And I know the old timers used to testify, and, and some of you that were raised especially in the Church of God Holiness, you, you, you probably remember those testimony services where, where these old saints would get up and say, I'm saved and sanctified and satisfied. And as a young teenager that wasn't always sanctified and didn't always behave himself in church, but when I heard these people start their wind-up, you know, I'm saved and sanctified, I knew what was coming satisfied, I always whispered, petrified. But, but even if you're saved and, and, and sanctified and satisfied until you are glorified, I don't care what theological camp you land in, the truth is that your carnal nature will at times poke up its ugly head. And yes, for those of us, and I'm one of them who does believe in sanctification and holiness of heart, we believe that God's Spirit does cleanse us and, and does help us to live a holy life. But until we start kicking up gold dust on the streets of the New Jerusalem, there will be ongoing temptations to do bad or to think bad or to say bad, even in committed followers of Jesus Christ. But anyway, all, all of that to say that what's, what's so intriguing to me is that when people begin to wrestle with why God allows bad in the world, we never point to the bad within us. It's always out there. And here's the bottom line. If, if we would realize just how bad our heart really is, uh, 
that, that would change what we would say about God allowing bad in the world. And, and I know this sounds funny, but, but I think we would suddenly be in the world of, of how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. And in other words, the realization of how bad we are would neutralize our argument of why God doesn't God just eliminate the bad in the world because we would realize we're part of the bad. And so we certainly don't want God to eliminate us. Now, it may not seem this way right now, but we do have a destination in mind. To get there, we're going back to the book of John that we've been in for several weeks. And if John would have heard what I just said about reconciling a good God with all of the bad in the world, I think John would say, you know what? I, 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 I was with Jesus when he dealt with a situation that might help you with that dilemma of why God allows bad things to happen. And we will find out that rather than uh, Jesus choosing to eliminate all the bad, he did something else, something much better. And what was that? You're going to have to hang with me another 20 minutes or so to find out. Our lesson centers around a miracle you would recognize. Everybody here will recognize this miracle. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And, and listen to this phrase. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, I love the way that the messengers identified Lazarus to Jesus. They, they didn't say, Jesus, do, do you remember, do you happen to remember a man by the name of Lazarus? And I know you meet a lot of people. Some time ago, you were going through Bethany and and uh, there was a guy by the name of Lazarus, had a couple of sisters, and th th they didn't identify him that way. The messengers, all they had to say was, the one you love is sick, and Jesus immediately knew who they were talking about. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death, in, in death which was a, seemed like a little bit of contradiction, because the fact is that by the time the messenger got to Jesus, which would have probably taken a day and a half to two days travel, Lazarus was already dead. Now, the messenger didn't know this, but he was dead. No, it's for God's glory. And so, so Scripture shows us that when bad things happen to good people like Lazarus, not only does it not disprove God, rather it underscores the existence of a good God. We're going to find that out this morning. Listen as Jesus finishes the statement, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, obviously, the bad thing in this story was a sickness, which we can relate to. We know all about sickness. People get cancer. People get Alzheimer's. People have strokes. People have heart attacks. Today, it's COVID with over 750,000 deaths worldwide. And I think we all wonder at times why a good and a loving God allows sickness to sometimes strike some of the best people. But, but Jesus makes it clear that the sickness in Lazarus, who was one of those good people like you are, it had a purpose. Well, in verse 5, Jesus makes an interesting statement. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, now why did John tell us this? Well, when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, on the outside it looked like he just blew off the messenger because it says when, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And so they come, you know, the, the, the one you love is sick. And it's like uh, Jesus said, okay, 
stay there two more days. So, so I think John wants us to know that Jesus truly loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, even though it may not have come across at that moment. Just as sometimes in our lives, we may feel that Jesus doesn't love us. You know, we think he hasn't answered our prayers. Our loved one is dying, which was the case here with Lazarus. And, and the question that I think that we all wrestle with is, why didn't Jesus drop everything and head for Bethany to see his friend that he loved so much? And after all, we find out in Scripture, Jesus healed total strangers. They appeared, he healed them, he had never seen them before, so why would he not rush off to heal his very good friend Lazarus? Well, of course, Jesus was up to something. So they hang around there for two more days and Finally, in verse 7, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea, which is where Bethany was, and would have been, again, a couple of days' walk. Verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Uh, obviously, the disciples didn't like the idea of going back to that area, because the, the, the Jews had tried to stone Jesus, and even though the disciples were not the target, yet the problem is that when you try to stone someone, they aren't always accurate. They're not professional stone throwers. I mean, just, just look at you. You try to throw a rock, and how, how close do you actually get? And that's probably the way it was. And so the disciples are trying to tell Jesus why going to Bethany was a horrible idea. Well, then Jesus does this thing that he seemed to do a lot. And it, was, it looked like he was changing the subject, but he was actually going into a teaching moment in verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by the day, by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. And, and you know, when Jesus makes this statement, the, the, the disciples have to scratch their heads and say, Jesus, well, what are you talking about here? Because, you know, we've been talking about Lazarus and all of that. And now you're talking about 12 hours of daylight and, and the world's light and well, we, we find out that, that Jesus was, was talking about the, the hours of opportunity that God had given them, and he was saying that you need to follow the light of the world while he's in the world. He said that right now you're in the physical presence of the light of the world, and if you stay away from Bethany out of fear and think you will be safer, Jesus was saying you're going to miss an opportunity to witness a situation that will forever change the way you think about life and death. And I want to just emphasize this morning for all of you that the safest place physically is not always the center of God's will. You know, serving God, following God at times involves great risk. And God's greatest goal for you is to not put you in a safe little bubble. You know, we hear the word quarantine a lot today, and, and, and there's a place for that. I understand with what's going on, but when it comes to life, God doesn't want us to be quarantined. The safest place is not always the center of God's will. It's the best place. It's where you will be the most fulfilled. But if you're looking for a safe place, you know, God's will will get you criticized. God's will won't keep you from being hurt. Well, he goes on and says in verse 10, it's when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. In other words, he's saying, you know what, if you're trying to, if you try to live life under your own wisdom, you will stumble around with no purpose and never be able to reconcile bad things that happen in the world. 
Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Now, now the disciples are still resisting going, and so in this next verse, they start giving Jesus medical advice. I don't know if you've ever given medical advice, especially to a doctor or, or, or a pharmacist. Um, you know, hey, 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 doc, start me on this medicine. No, don't, don't give me this medicine. You know, this other one gives me more of a buzz or, or whatever. And we, we are so bad. And I feel sorry for pharmacists. I feel sorry for, for doctors because those of us who never attended a, a day of med school in our lives, yet uh, we, we think we know it and we think we know more than they do. And, and, and by the same token, I, I think we do the same thing with God, even though he created everything and, and he knows everything, yet we try to give him advice. And, and here they begin to talk, and, and they, they, they say what we many times say. They, they don't have a clue what sickness Lazarus has, but they say, Jesus, it'll be okay. Verse 12 says, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. He'll be fine. It's all right. Well, John, writing after the fact, says this in verse 13, 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So, so the disciples said, he'll be okay. They didn't have a clue what they were saying. He'll be okay. Jesus said, you guys don't get it. He's dead. And I'm sure the disciples were like, uh, uh, you know, wait a minute. We're so confused. Two days ago, you said the sickness would not end in death. Two minutes ago, you told us he's merely sleeping. Now you're telling us he's dead. Jesus, quit talking in riddles. Well, what comes next seems so insensitive. In verse 15, he said, he's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. By the way, Jesus said that for the disciples. But listen, he said that for the sake of every parent who's buried a child. For the sake of every husband who's buried a wife. Or the wife who has buried a husband. And for the sake of every child who's buried a parent. Jesus came to help us understand one of the dilemmas that mankind has wrestled with for hundreds of years. How to reconcile the idea of a good God allowing evil in the world. And Jesus said... He, he's dead, but for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. And listen to this key that unlocks this. It says, so that you may believe. But let, let's go to him. And then comes one of the more humor, humorous parts of the New Testament. Remember, the disciples don't want to go. So Thomas speaks up in verse 16, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. You know, he's saying, Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to the area where they tried to stone him. And because people who throw the rocks during a stoning are typically horrible shots, this is not going to end well. We'll just all die together, doom and gloom. Let's just go out and eat worms. Well, meanwhile, back in Bethany, the talk is, why didn't Jesus come? They were confused. This was Lazarus' good friend. In fact, Jesus didn't even show up for the visitation. They typically had a visitation or more like, I guess, a wake that lasted a couple of days where friends and family would come and mourn with them. And, and then rich families, they would bring on professional mourners and they would pay them to come and weep and wail. 
And so the more rich the family, then it would be louder and more mourners, more weeping, more wailing. And, and death many times brought about a drama-filled atmosphere, atmosphere that was loud and, and heart-wrenching. And, and then after a couple of days of mourning, on the third day, they would bury the body. Or in Lazarus' case, they would put him in a cave. And so Jesus missed all of that. He missed the moment he died. He missed the period of mourning. He missed the funeral. He missed the graveside service. But finally, Jesus heads to Bethany, verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Skipping on down to verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you know what she was saying? Jesus, if you really loved us like we thought you did, you would have stopped this bad thing from happening. Let me tell you what this is. This is a prime example of how bad things even happen to good friends of Jesus. Martha's trying to cling to whatever faith she has. She's got to be like, Jesus, I, I'm trying not to be mad, but I, I still think you let us down. In verse 22, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And I think Martha probably just assumes that Jesus is going into preacher mode. You know, when tragedy strikes, and not just preachers, but many of you, you go into preacher mode. And what do we do? We quote scripture. We give them a book to read. We tell them, well, you know, there's another angel in heaven and another choir member in the heavenly choir. And, and we say all of those, uh, I, I'm sorry, but they're, they're kind of silly things. And maybe send them a link to listen to a song and and, and, and there's a place for that. I, I understand that. But sometimes grieving people are like, hey, you know what? I, I just lost somebody I love. I just found out I have cancer. I, I don't want any theology right now. And I, I'm sorry, I can't read a book. And in fact, I can't even listen to a song right now. Maybe later, but not now. And Martha thinks Jesus is in preacher mode and, and trying to put some sort of theological spin on Lazarus' death to make her feel better. And so in, in verse 24, Martha answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. In other words, Jesus, I know my theology. You know, I, I, I've been to synagogue. I've attended synagogue regularly, but I'm not concerned about the last day. I, I know there's a resurrection. I'm concerned about right now. I don't know how I can go on. I just unexpectedly lost my brother to an illness, and I'm hurting. Well, what comes next is, is breathtaking. Jesus looks at her and basically says, I'm not here to give you a sermon. I'm not going to talk about theology. I'm not even going to, going to text you a link to a song. I'm not going to tell you that your loss is heaven's gain and that all of heaven is rejoicing that we always say that kind of stuff. But in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, you talked about the resurrection. I'm the resurrection. I'm life. I'm everything you hope for, everything you need. And then he says, he who believes in me will live. And, and the word believe, we, we, we somehow don't understand the word believe. It's, it's not just simple belief, but the word believes refers to placing our trust in and, and committing our life to Jesus. It's not just a flippant, well, yeah, I believe. He says, we'll live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die and 
And I'm sure Martha couldn't understand that, but Jesus was trying to get across what preachers try to get across at every funeral. Death is just a transition. It's just a door. And if you attend funerals, you've heard this said so many times that takes us into eternal life. But, but then don't lose this. This is so huge. For those of you who have lost loved ones, Jesus looks at her. He sees the pain. He sees the confusion. He sees this person and family that he's been close friends with. He's eaten in their home. He looks at her and asks, do you believe this? I'm I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And I know it was hard for her to believe because honestly, sometimes it's hard for me to believe. But Mary musters up as much faith as she can and she says in verse 27, yes, Lord. And in her mind, she was probably thinking, Jesus, I, I still don't know why you didn't show up in time. Got a lot of questions, but I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. And Martha goes back into the house and tells her sister Mary, Jesus is there. She come out, comes out and they have a similar conversation with Jesus. And, and, and that causes both sisters to start weeping. And what happens at a funeral whenever the family starts crying? You know, most of us start crying. We can't take it. I know as a pastor, those last few moments, sometimes whenever I'm standing by the open casket and everybody's filed through and the family comes, I'm standing there and when they start weeping, I can't take it. I just, tears come to my eyes. But So Mary and Martha weeping brings on the tears of their friends who have come to show them support. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, Don't miss this extraordinarily tender moment. says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is Jesus, the Son of God, deeply moved in spirit. He asked, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. And I was just thinking about this. You know, Peter was also here at the, at, at the tomb with, with Jesus. And I, I wonder if that's why Peter wrote to us. I did a little bit of research when the book of Peter was written, but it was about 10 years after this account with, with Lazarus. And you know what he said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7? Cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Cast your your cares, your unanswered prayers, your stress, your disappointments, your fears, your fears. Why? He cares for you. Well, John then records in this next little verse, a short verse, little verse, but big deal, (laughs) big detail. I'm glad that whoever divided and compiled the Bible, and you know that when, when we received the Bible, we didn't just get it neatly in a book form and chapters and verses and all of that. That, 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 that they were on parchments and scrolls and it all ran together. And so those who compiled the Bible, they, they said, okay, well, let's, let's try to divide this up so we can kind of help people who are ADD to, to stay focused. And, and uh, you know, whenever the pastor says, turn here, we can kind of find out where he is. And so they divided it up into chapters, and then they thought, okay, well, let's divide this up into verses. And next comes a two-word statement that those who compiled this decided to put two words and just make it an entire verse. 
And here's what happened in John 11, 35. Jesus wept. You know, we've all made references to this verse. We call it the shortest verse in the Bible, which in English it is, but it's not the shortest verse in the original Greek text. It's the second shortest verse. Rejoice evermore in First Thessalonians is actually the shortest. But don't let the familiarity of, of, of this verse cause you to lose the emotion that was there. Jesus wept. He felt their pain just as he feels your pain, just as he feels your heartache. He feels your stress. He feels your fear. And you know what? It causes him to weep. Well, the Jews who had come from Jerusalem to help comfort Mary and Martha witnessed Jesus' emotion, and they said, see how he loved him. Well, in the next verse, we find ourselves in this story. Did you know you were in the Bible? Did you know you were in this story? Because in verse 37, some of them said, could, he who not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What were these people saying? Why did a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? But in this moment, Jesus takes your pain and your disappointment, your fear, your anger, your unanswered prayers, your questions about the unfairness in the world, your questions about COVID. And he brings hope. In verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And so scripture records three times in five verses how Jesus was deeply moved. Came to the tomb. It was a cave with stone laid across, uh, with a stone laid across the entrance. And, and then Jesus said something that I'm sure shocked everybody. He said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, and I, and I know that Martha was probably stuttering and stammering, and she, she was trying to figure out how to say it without being so blunt, because Lazarus' body, after four days in the hot Middle Eastern heat, would not be in good shape by now. said, but Lord, by this time, there's a bad odor. Those of you that grew up reading the King James Version, you know what it says here, he stinketh. He stinketh, for he has been there four days. But Jesus continued on. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So, so what happened? Well, in verse 41, they took away the stone. And, and I guarantee you, and this isn't in Scripture, but I guarantee you, when they took away the stone, everybody took several steps back. They knew that once the rock would be moved from the mouth of that cave, the stench of decaying flesh would be unbearable. And nobody had on masks. And then Jesus looked up and said, he was praying, Father, I, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had finished his prayer, verse 43, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And John writing this as an older man, 40 or so years after it happened, yet remembering it as if it were yesterday, the dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And, and the Bible doesn't say this either, but I have a feeling that everybody took a few more steps back. The dead man comes out. 
Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And finally, a few ventured to get close to him and they unwrapped the grave clothes off of the body. And then in a statement that John didn't need to make, but he did anyway. Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they put their faith in him. The light had come on. And many placed their faith in him. And I wish I could say that that's the end of the story. And I wish I could say that Peter and John led them in the doxology and pronounced a blessing on them and everybody went home and lived happily ever after. But, but there's more to the account. We've got to finish it. Not everybody was happy to see this dead man come to life. Can you imagine? A dead man comes back to life. Not everybody's happy. And he was a good man. And so they told the religious leaders what had happened, which led them to call a meeting back in Jerusalem. And they grappled with the undeniable reality, what had happened. And they said, if we let him go on like this, everybody will believe in him. They had no idea, did they? They had no idea that 2,000 years later, despite God, despite God allowing bad things to happen in the world, over a third of the world's population would follow him. How did that happen? And here we solve the mystery and answer the question of what God chose to do instead of eliminating all of the bad, which would have meant he would have eliminated us. Instead, God, God chose to dwell alongside of us. He chose to dwell alongside of evil men and evil women and walk with people through tragedies and natural disasters and comfort us and, and weep with us and help us see that He is the light. And some of us can't see that light until we go through dark times. And so what are some take-homes for us? Quickly, three things. One is that God hasn't called us to eliminate all of the bad from the world. We can't do that. We, we can't keep people from getting sick. We try, they're still going to get sick. We can't keep people from dying. We try, they still die. We can't keep people from doing bad things. We've got jails. We've got laws. They still do bad things. God did not call us to go on a mission to eliminate all of the bad. Number two, Rather than trying to eliminate the bad, we are to enter the lives of hurting and even messed up people and show them that we really care. Remember, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Thirdly, don't forget that God hasn't called us to live the safest life possible. In fact, Jesus invites us in Matthew 5, 17, to let our light shine before others, before sinners, before bad people, before messed up people, which at times will be risky. But we do that to help point them to the true light of the world, which is Jesus. All week long, and I told Faith, I said, I, 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 I'm wrestling whether or not to tell this story, and I want to make sure that I I, I'm supposed to tell the story because I, I know it will probably open me up to some criticism, and, but uh, so be it. Exactly one week ago, we were coming back from our vacation to the Sturgis area. Um, 
in a week's period of time, we traveled 48 and a half hours. That was drive time, which for adults, that's enough. But for a 10-year-old hyperactive kid, that just was pretty much the limit. And uh, so we were driving back last Sunday and had a lot of drive time. And so by uh, mid-morning, it was obvious Jace was not going to make it through the day and uh, still had a lot of hours. And so we were coming up an hour away or so from Omaha, Nebraska. And I, I just said, Faith, would you look up on your phone? Just Google, is there anything we can do in Omaha, Nebraska that would kind of provide a little bit of... Um, entertainment, whatever, just give Jace a break, and hopefully we could make it through uh, the rest of the trip then. And so she Googled it, uh, Googled it and uh, it was interesting what popped up, 19 unique things to do in Omaha, little known things. And the one that kind of uh, drew our attention was something that uh, took place at a place called the Alpine Inn which the Alpine Inn, you know, just because I love the mountains, and so the word Alpine, it really grabbed my attention. I thought, oh, interesting. Well, the next thing that we read about said that they had amazing fried chicken, and I don't know, there's something about preachers and fried chicken. For centuries, we've been drawn to fried chicken. In fact, today, that's what our lunch will be, thanks to the fundraiser of one of the Griffins, Chicken Mary's. And then the third thing, and this one was for Jace, it was, uh, it advertised that there were 50 raccoons that would come up and you could feed them chicken scraps and you didn't have to fear them. They weren't vicious or anything like that. They were, they were good. And so, um, you know, when we got fairly close, we put in the address and it was out of the way a little bit, but we, we went there and, uh, we, we arrived there about 11 o'clock, uh, you know, a week ago. And uh, I'll admit that when we arrived there, we were very underwhelmed. At Alpine Inn, um, I don't know how to say this in church, uh, it, it was a bar. And uh, so we, we kind of looked at each other and thought, oh my word, we drove all the way out here to go to a bar. And so we, uh, I said, well, at least let's look for the raccoon. So I went to the back of the building, and this lady in a stern voice said, sir, what are you doing? And she said, this is private property. I thought, oh. So I headed back around, and, and I said, I'm just looking for raccoons. She said, well, you've got to go in through the front door. And so uh, we, we d- debated what to do, and uh, we finally made the decision. And I know this sounds really, really funny because it was 11 o'clock, just as the moment you were going into this service one week ago, you were going into church and your pastor was going into a bar. Just didn't seem right at all. But we went in there and, and, and sat down. They gave us the prime window. They said, this is where you can actually see the raccoons and found out that you don't get to feed them. They feed them and all that. And so they went out there trying to bring the raccoons up and they would rattle the bucket and throw out all kinds of food. Not one raccoon came up the whole time. But anyway, the, the manager who happened to be the, uh, the owner's son-in-law, he was there and so making small talk and, you know, there was nobody else in the bar. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. It was way too early for the patrons there. But um, just making small talk and I said, you know, how did COVID affect you here? And and uh, they said, well, you know, we, we had to shut down for a while, but then they let us open, reopen there. And, 
and then uh, we could only have eight tables in the entire establishment, and then we, you know, just gradually added, and she you know, they said, we, we sanitize everything between, you know, whenever you leave, we'll sanitize everything, and, and it, it was just still, still kind of weird, waiting for the raccoons, and, and no raccoons would, would come up, and so anyway, in, in the course of the time when I was asking him, I, I reveal something that I typically don't reveal, because it, it causes people to just get really weird, and I normally don't reveal that I'm a pastor because people just get, it just gets awkward. And so sometimes they do the holy talk and sometimes they'll say, well, my uncle's uh, nephew's grandson, whatever is a preacher. And there's, there's a preacher in every woodpile, I think. But anyway, it just gets, it just gets really weird. And, but, but anyway, it just came out, said, you know, I'm a pastor and I'm sure he thought, oh yeah, really? 11 o'clock Sunday morning, you're in a bar and you're a pastor? Um, but, but anyway, just uh, did a little talking, and then the waitress, she would come up and take her order and all of that, and we finally, she finally brought our, our fried chicken, and we enjoyed the fried chicken, and we, we got up to, to leave and, and pay the bill, went up there to the, to the counter, which was at the real bar, and um, the waitress kind of lowered her voice a little bit, and you know, by then there was one person clear at the end of the bar already going after it, um, but she said, I heard that you're a pastor. I said, yeah. Immediately, she burst into tears. She started sobbing. And I said, what's going on? And she said, would you, would you pray for me, pray for my daughter? And she went one step further, and she said, would you have your church pray for us? And we talked a little bit more there, and then we, we headed out, and, and again, didn't see one raccoon. Saw a couple of cats, but they didn't count. But I got out to the parking lot, out to the car, and I said, honey, God sent us here on a mission. And it wasn't for the raccoons. It wasn't even for the fried chicken, which we enjoyed. But God sent us here to be able to hopefully minister to that lady. And I called them yesterday, talked with her daughter. And Faith is going to be sending them some things. And I don't know what's going to happen. But I got to thinking, you know, God, when God came, when God sent Jesus... He didn't just send him to the church. God sent his son to the world, rough, rough and tough sinners. And I'm not advocating that you go to a bar, but I do believe that God would be pleased for us to sometimes leave our little safe world and be with those who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't smell like us, but be there to just shine the light of Christ. And so, I'm thankful that God didn't just eliminate all the bad in the world because I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't either. Rather, God chose to send His Son to dwell with us. And we've been commissioned to go spread the good news about Jesus. And so I pray that there is... As Jesus was talking about, you know, the light, we have 12 hours and of opportunity, daytime. This is the opportunity we have right now. 
I don't know how long it will last before darkness comes. But what, may we take advantage of the opportunities that God has given us. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.